Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Hannah Blackiston. Hello. Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, I'll be talking to Triple M content boss Mike Fitzpatrick about how radio has changed during the pandemic. We always live by the rule that uh, you're always in survey. Working with controversial talent. And, you know, controversy, by the way, doesn't hurt radio. And taking on a cause with no talk today. We use those spaces where we would normally have been playing ads for you to reach out and talk to someone about your problems. But first, the week's topics. Ten shakes it up. Domino's calls in the queen. Tick toxic. Is binge being a cheapskate? We'll start this week with television. Hannah, in the ratings, it's all about the reality shows at the moment. Um, And now Bachelor in Paradise has joined the battle as well. Correct. So after what feels like we've been in a bit of a holding pattern in terms of reality shows, as everyone kind of eked out the last couple of weeks of what they had left over pre-COVID, we've now finally seen the first new show in Bachelor in Paradise. It was filmed well before COVID, but I presume 10 was sitting on it to kind of fill a bit of a slot in their lineup as they couldn't keep filming a lot of their other shows. So it returned for its third season on Wednesday night to 507,000 Metro viewers, um, which is significantly lower than other years. It dropped about 50,000 from 2019 and about 200,000 from its first season in 2018. 10, however, of course, saying that they're really happy with the way it performed. It did top the youngest advertising demographic of 16 to 39s, which is kind of, you know, where the space where 10 like to play. So I think they were happy from that point of view, but I would have expected them to be hoping for a little bit better from it. And I'm going to take a bit of a gamble because I didn't check this before. Uh, let me ask the group, did, did anyone happen to watch the show? I did happen to watch the show I think part of the uh, and and I know that you're shocked by that revelation Tim so you heard it here first but I think uh, Ten's problems with this show are, are twofold this time around one is that as Hannah alluded to it was filmed so long ago that so many of the spoilers have been in the Daily Mail and in the mainstream media for so long that people sort of feel like they already know what the character arcs and romance stories are going to be in this season. But also 10, which is normally fantastic at a promo, as we've talked about before, they're great at hype reels. They've given away so much of the plotline of this series in all of its heavy, heavy promotions throughout its well-performing MasterChef that perhaps some people just feel like they don't actually need to watch it this year because they already know what's going down. And I must admit, I, I did manage the first 10 or 15 minutes um, and it, it it really feels like the, one of the first shows that's really jarred for me, that difference between shot before and after COVID, you know, just, just the opening scenes where, and I'm sure you can tell me the name of the contestant was trying to do the, the, the double um, cheek kiss. Hello with Usha uh, um, G- Gunsberg and the awkwardness around it as well, whether to do one kiss or two, et cetera. But it all felt like so much, you know, from ancient history, we can't do that anymore. 
Yeah, it was very strange to watch. And the uh, person that you're referring to is Abby Chatfield and Osha Ginsberg trying to do the double hello kiss. And it was very strange to watch everybody cuddling up and having cocktails in big groups and gallivanting around the pool. On the one hand, I would have thought perhaps that would play into consumers' desire for escapism and for pre-COVID and that would make them flock to the show. But I do just think that it's a bit old now and people just feel like it was filmed last year, which, you know, in, in the era of COVID feels like about five years ago. So I think for some people they just feel like they're watching something from an era gone by. And Hannah, let's just cover off the rest of the realities shows as well, because there there are a few kind of in the uh, in the final throws at the moment. How are they all travelling? Yeah, the voice is uh, growing close to its conclusion now. They've obviously struggled during COVID, mainly due to the restrictions, which has meant some of their judges can't enter the country. Um, but it's still performing really well. It kind of slipped. In the last couple of weeks, it's slipped to its lowest, but it's kind of pulled back a little bit from that. So it's not doing too badly. This is for nine, by the way. That's for nine. Yep. MasterChef for 10 hasn't actually finished yet, but is still performing really well. Um, And Seven's Big Brother is chugging along at the same level it has been for the whole season. That also should be drawing to a conclusion soon. Well, while we're talking about ten, a few weeks back we had Bev McGarvey on uh, on the Mumbrella Cast, and we were we were we we were playing what must have been for the listeners a very dull guessing game, in which we tried to persuade Bev to tell us some um, a little bit about what the new um, multi-channel, secondary channel, whatever we want to um, choose it will actually be. Uh, and now we know. We do uh, introducing to you all Ten Shake. Um, which, which, will be- which looks to me a little bit like MTV Light. Well, MTV Light in the evenings, it's worth pointing out that there's a very kind of different lineup plan for 10 Shake up until I think it's around 6 p.m. It'll be children's programming. And then in the evening, it will be, as you said, MTV content primarily. So your Geordie Shores, your Catfish, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think it's quite interesting. I spoke to 10's head of programming, Daniel Monaghan, and he said there's nothing else like it on free-to-air in the commercial networks, mainly pointing to the fact that the other commercial networks don't really play in that children's content space. That's kind of a big thing for ABC, but it's not a big thing necessarily for 9 or 7. So it'll be interesting to see whether that does work in Ten's favour. I think also the big point that they're pushing, and you'll have seen it anywhere, you've seen a shake ad up to this point, is iconic from day one, which is basically the fact that they've got all these really well-recognised brands, some of which haven't been on free-to-air before, some of which have, and they're able to kind of push them straight out of the box. So, yeah, I think it'll be interesting historically you know it takes a little while for a multi-channel to build its audience so I don't think they're expecting massive numbers from the get-go but in the next couple of you know say couple of months especially as we push towards upfront season it'll be interesting to see what they plan to do with it. I wonder why they've gone down the route of children's programming in the day though given that the commercial free-to-air networks spend so much of their lobbying time and emotional energy on 
whinging about children's content quotas and not wanting to fulfill that because there's so many restrictions around what kinds of ads you can run when children's content is playing. It's expensive for little commercial return. The viewing numbers are low. They've invested so much time over the years making that point and then they're going to spend an entire day on an entire channel offering that content. Yeah, I think what they, you're right in the commercial space, obviously. And I also spoke to Chief Sales Officer Rod Prosser, and he did say, you know, obviously there's a lot of hoops to jump through from a commercial point of view. But what they've got access to now is the Nickelodeon content, which nobody else has got. So they're able to run those big children's brands like SpongeBob SquarePants and iCarly alongside their own 10 children's content. I think probably the point is they wouldn't be getting great audiences from 6am to 6pm on a multi-channel anyway. Multi-channels tend to do better in the evenings as it is. So maybe they thought, well, we can, you know, chuck reruns of Bold and the Beautiful there, or we can use that time to make the most of the new content partnerships we've got. And it's worth just spelling out the reason why, Hannah, is that CBS uh, owns uh, owns 10 and CBS and what was Viacom, which owns MTV and Nickelodeon, all part of the same family now, which me, which which effectively is what what gives Ten all of those extra rights. Yeah, and there was a big point to that during my interview with Daniel and Rod too. They said, you know, up until this year, they had talked about a lot of options because since there have been multi channels, Ten has been asked when they were going to add another one. Obviously, they're not at the same level everyone else is with three multi channels. So I think probably up to now, CBS was a pretty tempting opportunity there for them. And I think 10 Bold makes a lot and makes use of a lot of that because they run a lot of those crime procedurals that CBS does. But with Viacom, this youth content, a lot of which hasn't been on free to air before, as I said, you know, it's a pretty obvious opportunity for them, I think. And we don't quite yet know when it'll actually go to air. No, we don't. So in my chat with Rod, he said September. Um, and he said they want to get it up and they want to get it working before upfront season. Um, but 10 haven't committed to a date yet. But I suspect, you know, if Rod's saying September, that's when we should expect to see it. Next, TikTok's push to stay out of geopolitics. So TikTok only opened an Australian office a few weeks ago, uh, and it came as the noise got louder globally about potential security risks of a Chinese-owned social media platform. Uh, Viv, um, TikTok have tried to get on the front foot this week with, I guess, a bit of issues management. Yeah, so they took out full page ads in the paper on Thursday saying don't make TikTok a political football uh, in a move which is bound to make it a political football. Uh, They say we're fun, we're safe, we're independent. So it's definitely reactive to the global and local perception that TikTok is selling data to the Chinese government or giving it away for free perhaps and the various security issues that the platform allegedly has So they're trying to position themselves as a very fun, easygoing, Australian-loving app when there's a big movement against it that perhaps that might not be the case. So it's starting to feel to me like it's just going to be a matter of time before it gets banned 
in Australia and other kind of Western aligned countries. It it just feels that that's the that's the the way the political agenda seems to be moving. It's already been banned in India, and there are certainly certain voices and people crying out for it to be banned here. It would be a very political move, though, should we ban it, because tensions are mounting between Australia and China anyway in terms of our relationship, in terms of our calls for the COVID-19 pandemic to be investigated, and in terms of our relationship with Donald Trump and America's wider mounting war against China. So I think if we did ban it, there would be wider ramifications than people not being able to do dance challenges and and get involved with the platform. TikTok's hugely reactive and ready to go on this though. The second I posted that story about the full page ad, I had an email that is just so long, clearly copied and pasted to every journo that writes about TikTok with various things about transparency reports, background, policy information, things happening in Hong Kong, things happening in the US, a letter sent to the Australian government, security moves. So they're definitely on top of this and and trying to change the narrative. Uh, But I I do think that once you're at the stage of taking out full-page ads to claim that everything's fine and please leave us alone, uh, perhaps you're a little bit far down the rabbit hole. I would actually be incredibly surprised if TikTok is banned. I think they've distanced themselves from China as much as they can. And I also think, you know, it's starting to be a bit of a dangerous landscape if we're going to start banning platforms for um, misuse of data or the way they connect data or whatever their political alignments are. If you look at the massive backlash that's been hit against Facebook over the last couple of weeks and their big advertiser um, boycott of Facebook, There's also been a lot of pieces out there that have connected TikTok and Facebook saying that they're kind of taking the same amount of data, taking the same type of data. How is TikTok any worse? I think it's a bit of a Pandora's box. And if we're going to make a move against TikTok, we're going to have to start being a lot more stringent in terms of data protection across the board. And that to me seems quite unlikely to happen. I think whether or not TikTok is officially aligned with the Chinese government is one thing, but as a lot of commenters have pointed out with this, it doesn't matter how distanced TikTok thinks it is. If the Chinese government demands that data, the Chinese government is going to get that data. I think, Hannah, you're totally right that Facebook is equally as exploitative and problematic, uh, but there's less evidence that Donald Trump, for example, is harvesting that data. It's just private companies harvesting that data. And I think there's a lot of fear around a government getting involved. Uh, someone calling themselves Max Jackson has said on my article, to imply that China has no access to the data gathered is ludicrous. With all due respect to the Australian team, they have zero visibility over the access to the data. Uh, and other people sort of point out that it just doesn't matter what people in the TikTok machine are told. We're not going to find out if China's getting access to that data because they're not going to tell us. The private corporation is going to defend itself. And if the government does want to see what's going on, it's going to be able to. But you're totally right that if we ban TikTok, I think that there would be equally valid calls for us to ban uh, the old Facebook as well. Well, that's a good point because um, we, we, we should talk about the sort of the visibility locally. So we've just seen the Australian office uh, open f- um, by Lee Hunter and Brett Armstrong. They really are 
putting their own reputations behind TikTok. Um, and that feels like quite a bold move when you can never really see what's going on behind the scenes. Lee certainly uh, has become the spokesperson for TikTok and for its credibility and its transparency, its safety and its security. Uh, Hunter, you know, said in a statement to, to me when I've previously written about TikTok and we've run things on it, TikTok does not share information on users in Australia with any foreign government, including the Chinese government, and would not do so if asked. Now, that implies that Lee Hunter has any kind of control in saying no to the Chinese government or that the Chinese government would even notify Lee Hunter should they want some information and some data. So uh, definitely towing the company line and and definitely spruiking it as a a safe and creative and fun space. Should it all go uh, wrong, though, you're right, there's definitely uh, people who've put their name and their integrity behind everything being A-OK. And do you think there's any sort of brand safety risk from marketers who use it as a marketing platform? I think there's a brand safety risk for marketers using any of the social media platforms, uh, particularly at the moment. Uh, I just don't think that they can guarantee any kind of safety. I mean, Facebook is being manipulated for elections and for political purposes. Twitter is a place where everybody just shouts at each other about elections and political purposes. TikTok, allegedly the the fun and creative space, has all sorts of problems with uh, the content that it runs, who can see that content, what's happening with your data. So I don't know that that anything's safe, but at the same time that's where consumers are and that's where young eyeballs are. So it's that constant balancing act for marketers. But no, I don't think anything is 100% brand safe. I, I read a post on Reddit this week where someone made the point that the only – the, the only platform which is still pure is MySpace. <laughs> oh, I saw a great thing about that uh, as well, saying basically be like Tom from MySpace. You know, he sold it. He he sold the company before he sold your data. He made a lot of money. He had a good time and then he got out and he's not responsible for the evils of the world with the exception of the fact that he made you rank your top eight friends, which was in high school quite the political football. Next, the week in Adland. And on to the week in advertising. Where shall we start, Zoe? Let's start with Domino's, Tim, which has had a bit of fun with the um, current royal drama between Prince Harry and the rest of his family. So good to see you again, Harry. You too, Granny. I'm actually glad we split. Really? Yes. Whoever thought you could combine a supreme and pepperoni? Nothing brings people together like a Domino's half and half. Bring it in. Gosh, so realistic. Yes, I'm a little bit disappointed that they're not the real members of the royal family for this one, but... Uh, Domino's isn't the first brand to uh, sort of take advantage of this giant news story in pop culture that would you believe actually happened this year and not 30,000 years ago. See, that's the thing. Um, Can you count this as topical? Because obviously, yes, it happened in 2020 that Harry decided to split from the House of Windsor. But it's not exactly ripped from the headlines, is it? 
No, I wouldn't necessarily call it topical either because if you compare it to what Flight Centre did right in the midst of Harry and the Duchess of Sussex, Meghan Markle, um, announcing that they were going to step back as senior members of the royal family, Flight Centre printed ads in News Corp's coverage like below it that said grandkids moving to Canada with like a corgi next to it. That's topical that's timely. So in comparison, this isn't the same, but I don't know. I think people will still get the gag and I think how consumers perceive it will depend on how much of a royalist they are. And look, and I guess it's in reality, it's not really a a brand ad as such, is it? It's an announcement ad. It's the half and half product. Here you go. Bish bosh, job done. On to NAB, and we're going to play the voiceover, but I think afterwards I'm actually going to then need to describe the action as well, given that the uh, uh, Umbrella cast is very much an audio medium. But let's hear it first of all. What matters most to you? Is it the place you call home? Or life on the land? Is it looking after your best worker? Or the business you've put everything into? or a game that brings us together. What is money for, if not for this? Nab, more than money. So this one starts with a girl who she's looking out of an apartment window. She's obviously a few floors up. She looks kind of across the street and through another window where there's a, a family and a and a young child, sort of the mum handing that to the dad. Then it pans down and you, we see a farmer unloading his wares, someone carrying coffee, uh, greeting somebody else as they go into presumably their shop, which you can't quite tell whether it, it sells clothes or pictures whilst you've got kid bouncing his, I think, AFL ball. You've got some sort of medical worker just preparing to cross who gives the little girl a wave. So a, a lot happens in that 30 seconds, but all in one take. Um, it must have taken quite a lot of choreography. Yes, I think the timing for this would have to be spot on and there would be a, v- a very comprehensive method of communication connecting the people down on the street level, like pushing people into shot and with the camera person up top making sure it pans across right when the people start walking, which would be very impressive, very theatrical. And it feels like um, as much credit belongs to the production company who shot it as the creative agency. So um, creative agency behind it being um, Clemenger BBDO, um, but then the film production from Revolver and uh, the director was Gary Friedman, who uh effectively back in the day when host were a much bigger presence was almost the outsourced creative department of host but nice to see um there's still some great work coming out of revolver yeah it would have to be a very close collaboration between the two to bring this to life um the concept behind this campaign is about how people have Reevaluated what they value in life and what is important to them. And Nabby's sending the message that you should be focusing your money and directing your money towards those things that you value. So the tagline is, what is money for if not for this? So are we counting this as a COVID ad? I would say yes. I think 
COVID is the context for everything now. And I mean, there is the small reference, or the way I read it was a reference to it. Um, at the end of the ad, the girl looks down and um, sees her mother in scrubs, um, either returning from work or going to work and they wave to each other through the window. And, you know, if you're talking about things that are valuable to you, what means uh, the meaning things hold for you, I think you can't really escape that sort of message of COVID at the end about, you know, family is what mean is what means something to you, but this mother is making a sacrifice by leaving her daughter at home and going to the hospital. But maybe I've read too much into it. I can see your face. You're looking a bit skeptical, Tim. No, no, I'm actually thinking about it because I, I mean, I'd argue that there's a little bit more depth to this than some of that COVID advertising because a lot of it was that you know we talked about it before the we're all in it together, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I, um, yeah, I, I, I feel like this is quite an interesting way of of talking to an audience in a in a less cliched way yeah i i agree because you're not really hit over the head with the covid stick you know so that and that is something i noticed when i first watched the ad and thought was quite refreshing given the number of ads i have watched in the last 3 or 4 months that have really been very intense on the emotional coronavirus we're all in this together scale I think the way they've done it in that sense is quite clever because, you know, this ad will be able to run for a very long time and you probably won't clock the COVID sort of context as much as time goes on, but I guess that also depends on how long things last here in Australia. And nobody wants to be hit on the head with the COVID stick. No, so stay inside, wash your hands when you return home, and wear a mask if you're in Melbourne or Sydney and you're leaving the house. Next, is Binge trying to exploit its viewers? News Corp's new entertainment streaming service, Binge, this week launched a new promotion. Its viewers can become reviewers. But is it a cheap way for owner News Corp to get unpaid writers? Now, I suspect that this is going to be a, a bit of a, a debate between team members. And look, I already know where everybody stands. But uh, Brittany, we might start with you. There was a, a bit of a perception and indeed a number of uh, observers contacted us saying that the optics of seeking out consumers to do reviews of Binge's content with the opportunity to have that uh, review then featured throughout News Corp mastheads at a time that the publisher has let so many journalists go and indeed so many wider entertainment reporters and content producers are out of work was just a, a bad look, you know, crowdsourcing for free content when they aren't paying journalists for the same type of content. Do you think that that's a, is it just bad timing or is there something bigger at I play I think timing here? certainly makes the optics look worse, but I think there's definitely a bigger trend of trying to get people to work for free. I mean, there's a few issues, right? I read the Gizmodo piece that also covered this story and someone from Binge 
gave a comment to Gizmodo where they said that, well, it's like writing a letter to the editor. You know, people don't get paid to send in their letters to the editor. And it's like, sure, but sending a letter to an editor also isn't billed as a prize or something that should be coveted. I mean, what News Corp is essentially saying is should you get picked and there must be a level of quality that they're looking for. I mean, we can talk about whether or not it'll be professional journalists actually submitting applications or mere, you know, hobby binge watchers. There has to be a level of quality that they're looking for if they're going to run this content across News Corp's mastheads. So, you know, they're essentially saying you can enter for a chance to work for us for free. And the thing that got me as well was in the terms and conditions, they set out the value of the prize pack. So the value of the prize is, you know, in exchange for your work, we'll give you a free yearly subscription to Binge, which is worth $168. So the prize pool is $168 times however many reviewers that they're looking for. The value of that prize pool doesn't take into consideration the value of the work, though. Surely the value of the prize is $168 for a subscription minus how much your work is actually worth in your time. So, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't sit right with me, unsurprisingly. But, yeah, it just I, – I don't think that you're going to see, you know, the goggle boxes of the world, which is what it's kind of being compared to. Like you can watch TV and kind of make something more out of it. It's not going to be people that have no ability to write. It's going to be people that would otherwise be paid for their work. Hannah, you and I talk content in our private channels all the time, though, and, uh, you know, live text each other during Bachelor in Paradise and, and talk about various characters in TV shows and how they may or may not relate to friends we have or men we've dated or things that we've observed. Is it any different to that, though? Is it not just taking the conversations that are happening in private channels or would be happening on Reddit or on various uh, chat rooms and messaging boards and just sort of giving it to the content creator to use in a promotional way? Yeah, I mean, you could definitely make that argument that it's no different from that. But um, I would say there's somewhat, you know, if we were to start advertising on the internet for somebody to come in and join our group chat and take part in our opinions and voice their own. I definitely don't want them in our group chat, just to be clear. (laughs) I can see there being a bit of backlash. I think to me, you know, it's not necessarily terrible that they're opening this up as a competition. And I don't think it in itself is the issue. I think it's bad optics, obviously. I also think there was a bit of a window here for a really good opportunity for them to, instead of, you know, offering it up like they've offered it up, perhaps open it up to an up and coming TV writer and say, okay, you know, as part of this, we're going to pay you, I don't know, as a contributor salary and we're going to get your writing out there. But, you know, there's going to obviously be a focus on binge. I think, it just muddies the waters, which is really worrying to me at these times in particular, you know, it would be worrying any other time. But when we've seen like over a thousand journalism jobs go in the last couple of months, it's particularly concerning. There's a couple of like individual things that are worrisome too. You know, there's no there's no clear guide on how many reviews are being expected from the winners. There's no clear guide on how they'll be published. There's no clear guide. There's something in the terms and conditions that says 
the promoter is not obliged to publish any works or reviews. So you could, in theory, enter this competition, write all these reviews, thinking, hells yeah, this is my entrance into the heady world of TV writing and then none of it gets published. So I don't know. It's just a bit of a mess, I think. And I think considering all the bad press, you know, News Corp is getting, which obviously this is a binge competition, but, you know, it's all part of the same umbrella. Considering all the bad press they're getting, they kind of had this opportunity here to do something really cool with it and they just did not do that. Now, Tim, I I know that you're uh, going to offer up uh, the defence in favour of this competition, but there's a lot of focus in the industry at the moment about diversity, both in terms of ethnicity and uh, economic situation and and all of that. Does a competition like this, even if it is lighthearted, even if it just goes to TV lovers, is it not going to advantage people who come from a privileged economic background in that they are the ones who have the spare time and can afford to do a bit of work for free? You know, we've had this discussion around unpaid internships in the industry before that it's a very privileged position to be able to take an unpaid internship because it means that you're financially secure or have savings or have someone backing you. Do we think underprivileged people or or people from outside the industry are really going to be able to even think about this competition? Look, there's a there's a couple of false equivalences in there, I think. You know, for starters, this is not like a publishing platform advertising for an intern to come in and do actual work for several months unpaid just to get a bit of exposure where a part of their business model is about getting free work you know there is uh, you know let's 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 we, we we sort of alluded to but let's make the point yes binge is owned by news Corp ultimately um but what this is I don't think anyone, if we if we thought about it, really thinks this is a plot by News Corp to get free journalism and free opinion. This is an initiative that came out of the marketing department. You know that they're 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 trying to find ways of building some word of mouth and interacting with their audience. Um, and I I don't know why I when it, whenever this sort of debate comes up, it always feels like there's a bit of a you know, we talk about sort of equality of access, etc. It always feels like at some level, not that I, I would ever imply this is where where Brit and Hannah are coming from, but it's almost as if to say, you know, journalists, we're a sort of elite who should be allowed to do this and the public shouldn't. You know, it's a professional thing to pass judgment in a in a program in a program or a show. You know, we they should leave it to us, the professionals. Um, so I don't know. I just I just worry that we potentially come across as a little bit elitist if we're not careful. I don't think that this is a move by News Corp to cheat some TV journalist out there out of a job. I don't think they've gone, oh, you know, it'll be the same quality as somebody who's been writing TV, some random person from the internet who's going to send in their opinions. Do you, I think what interests me though, is that I completely agree. I think this came out of some marketing department and they were like, this is great. People who watch TV will love this. It then had to be approved by a series of people, and surely some of those people somewhere along the line have been asked about redundancies over the last couple of months because there have been so many across so many businesses involved in this promotion. Do you not perhaps think that just the optics on this seem a little unfortunate and maybe now is not the right time to come out with something like this? 
Well, I think, but the optics to who? The optics to us in our very mm. small world, perhaps, to the outside world, to binge viewers, to their target audience, mm. it feels like such a big stretch. I think, though, the people that were contacting me about this promotion weren't just upset journalists. They were sort of other marketers, other industry observers, other people within the industry commenting like that this is just unfortunate timing and perhaps not a great look. I did ask Binge about this, obviously, and their spokesperson said, of course, this is not a substitute for the important role that journalism plays and is completely unrelated to any decisions media companies might make about their business models. The Binge Club is a lighthearted consumer competition to find people who love watching content and love to talk about content. So, I mean, that sort of sounds like it It sums up your argument, Tim, but it's worth noting that people who've had a problem with this aren't just out-of-work journalists or high and mighty elitist journalists. It's also people in the wider industry. Look, and there's probably also another point that we, we should make before people accuse us of hypocrisy. You know, we when we carry guest posts from people within the industry, we don't pay for those. We view there being a different value exchange where someone has the opportunity to potentially position themselves as an expert in the same way that when people um, speak at our uh, events, then mostly we don't pay. You know, every now and then if someone works for themselves and we think that they're going to sell tickets, we we might pay for their travel costs to come over from the US or whatever and pay them a fee. But broadly, we take the view that we if someone sees a value in speaking to our audience, positioning themselves as an expert, then there's an exchange of value. Uh, and I'm not sure this is any different I would to argue that. It is different though, because people writing opinion pieces for us or speaking at our events are not doing so in you know on the weekend, or if they are, that's an active choice that they're making if they're deciding to spend the weekend writing op-eds to submit. They're, you know, probably fairly high paid executives to you know, either be invited to speak at an event or to position themselves as an expert on a topic and therefore have the authority to write on it. So they're doing that as part of their job, not just to position them, but also their business favorably. And I would argue they're getting paid for that. You know, if they're speaking at an event from two to four and that's on a work day, that's during work hours. I think that that's different to whether or not these are kind of journalists who would otherwise be paid or hobbyists that are just watching TV and think that they've got funny opinions to offer up. I think that, you know, regardless of of the background of that person, it's still work. Like they're doing work. If it was binge asking for people to upload Instagram posts for a chance to for that Instagram post to be put on a billboard surely that's influencer marketing and surely creators would expect to be paid for the work that would go into producing content for them to make money off of. I would say that surely this is the same thing. Like they are making money off of your content. You are not getting a cut of that. The value exchange is not fair because they're relying on you wanting exposure and getting a very small prize, quote unquote, of a subscription in return. Totally, but I guess that opens up the argument that Facebook is making money off all of my hilarious content and I don't get a cut of that. So I think uh, once you open up those floodgates of my data, my humorous hot takes and my conversations being used for third parties to make money, my goodness, I'm going to start sending a lot of people a lot of invoices. 
Next, Hannah talks to Triple M's content boss, Mike Fitzpatrick. I am Mumbrella's Hannah Blackiston, and I am joined by Triple M's Mike Fitzpatrick. Thank you for joining me today. No worries, Hannah. Pleasure to be here, seeing you across the the country, thanks to COVID-19. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> well, let's start there. You know, radio particularly, obviously all the media has been hit by COVID-19, but radio, you've kind of got all sorts of problems. Let's start off with you've entered a non-ratings period for quite a while now. How has that, how has that been? Uh, well, I mean, to, to me, it doesn't really make much of a difference, uh, certainly to me and, the, and the, the Triple M team. I mean, we always live by the rule that uh, you're always in survey. You know, our listeners don't take holidays from the radio unless they're actually on holidays. Um, what what has been more disruptive, I would imagine, is the change to listening habits more than anything else. And I guess we, while we don't, um, we won't get any real assessment of that through GFK. We can see it through streaming numbers and and app downloads and on demand content, how people are consuming our product. So it's afforded us. It's afforded us a bit of a, an insight into uh, listening habits. It's afforded us an increase in listening in some cases as well, especially across the workday. You know, we've seen exponential increases. Um, our, our radio streams are up 21% and our, our live weekday listening hours are increased by 19% during COVID. That's measurable. You know, that's just through streaming numbers. Um, and we've seen that the morning starts a little later. So this this sort of break has afforded us the opportunity to move some shows around. You know, when it hit early on, we, we moved our breakfast shows to 10 o'clock because people were wanting information. And that's one of the, the exceptional things about radio. And one of the fundamental differences from most other mediums is that we have the ability just to do that. People still come to us when they want information and we can give it to them live. So we kept our breakfast shows on. We were taking... We were taking um, Press conferences from the prime minister and the various uh, the various premiers, premiers. Uh, and then once that initial shock, that initial initial lockdown phase went, we moved some of our shows just from seven till ten, and, and have been able since, as as people have started to return return to some sort of uh, normality, to shift them back to six to nine. And have you seen any change anywhere else? Obviously, audio has been a bit of a changing landscape over the last couple of years. We've seen, you know, the rise of podcasting and catch up and all that sort of thing. Have you seen any other big changes in listening habits during this time other than the time shifts? Yeah, I mean, smart speaker listening is up. It's up almost 30%. Um, I think people have realised now they've got a radio in their home again and also spending time in their homes. You know, they can... uh, they're probably using their, their smart speakers a lot more for radio. Um, podcasts up, you know, significantly, uh, 16% increase in, in downloads. And that's not only of our catch-up shows, but also our bespoke uh, bespoke programming as well. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest change is how people are consuming the content that they might be missing. You know, we, we have early drive shows and, and, and late sports shows that with without people on the road, they're not hearing. So they're grabbing them later at night or early again the next morning. It'll be interesting to see as to whether that kind of um, is sticky moving forward, whether they continue to consume like that or they'll go back to live listening. Either way, we're still getting the engagement and increased engagement from those listeners for that content. 
And you mentioned sport in there. I would imagine that's been a real struggle for um, Triple M, you know, being so closely associated with sport and we haven't had any sport. Well, you would think so. I mean, live sport, certainly. We didn't have the first few weeks of the AFL season. We had the first two weeks of the AFL season, then we had a break. Uh, Same with NRL. But our sports shows didn't stop. Uh, So we were forced to be creative around what we delivered. And and our head of football in Melbourne, um, Ewan, who had hit on the idea last year of recalling some classic matches in the AFL bye week, they recalled the 89 grand final, Geelong and Hawthorne, which is a, a famous match with our current call team, given how much our audience love our personalities. So they recalled that match, and that was hugely successful for us. So they recalled some classic matches where there would have been games on Saturday afternoons. Our sports shows stayed, and really they are sports entertainment shows. And so while um, there's no actual results or or the technical aspects of the sport to talk about, we've got such good talent and such strong personalities that just listening to them interact and talk about everyday content is enough uh, to retain the audience there. And we found that when we did Triple M Cricket, you know, one of the biggest pieces of feedback we had when we did cricket was the audience saying, we love it when there's rain delay because we don't, the show doesn't get interrupted by the cricket. <laughs> you know, and, and the Triple M uh, footy rub, the AFL rub, is one of the most or the most downloaded um, catch-up podcast in, in SCA. It gets 130,000 downloads a week. It's an, it's an hour and 30 minutes of radio on a Saturday. Because of the the chemistry between those guys, it's a it's a brilliant sports entertainment show. But again, you don't need sport going on around it for it to be for it to exist or for it to be a, a show each week. So we've been challenged in terms of live sport, but we certainly be, haven't been challenged in terms of being able to deliver sports entertainment shows. And talent is so important, obviously, in radio. And there's always a conversation about you know talent retention. Anytime any big name moves from one network to another there's all that you know how how do you retain more talent how do you keep hold of talent triple m's pretty good at it there are a lot of announcers who have had some pretty long tenures on triple m how important is that talent retention and how do you kind of go about trying to keep people really happy so that your audiences stay happy well it's it's um it's really hard to get audiences to come to a show you know, if you're, if you're launching a show against another radio station or another successful program, they have to do something wrong for the audience to leave. Or there has to be a deficit in the market for people to find your show. For example, if there are no sports shows on a weekday afternoon and all of a sudden, and, and we, we feel there's a need for it, all of a sudden we create a sports show, there's no competition, that show is automatically going to find an audience. But if we're launching... Uh, a comedy morning show against three other comedy morning shows, there's no reason for that audience to leave those shows if they're happy. So we have to wait for one of them to make a mistake or one of them to make a casting uh, a change. Often, um, oftentimes we'll, you know, try and uh, poach one of those talent if we believe, um, if we believe it's necessary for us to move an audience. But more, more often than not, we, we find our own talent and create our own shows. In terms of so, – so to go back to the start of your question, uh, because it's so hard to get an audience to come to your show, it makes sense that when they're there, you don't change it. <laughs> if it's growing, whether it be incrementally or exponentially, if it's growing over a long period of time – and you can't really – very few shows will move the needle in two years. Mm. You know, Kyle and Jack are an exception and an exceptional show, and so you know they're, they're, 
a once in a generation show or Hamish and Andy. But but other shows, um, they take two to three, sometimes four years to move a needle. And so you want to make sure that the offering for the audience is consistent. And by not changing the cast of those shows, that's the best way to maintain consistency. The other is to not move time slots, which I've been guilty of uh, from time to time, particularly in Melbourne on some sports shows. Um, but keeping the talent there really comes down to ensuring that the environment they have is a creative one, that they all understand, everyone understands the goal we're working towards, um, making sure that the fit is right. If you've, if you've hired... Um, if you've hired someone to do a, a style of show on your radio station and then you decide halfway through their tenure that you want them to do a different style of show, it's, it's probably fair to say they're going to be unhappy and want to leave. But if you both agree at the start on what the show is going to be, you can make slight adjustments along the way. But if this is the premise of the show, then this is what the show is going to be for their entire tenure at the radio station. And the environment around them is happy and they're remunerated to a point where they, they feel they're, they're, they're happy um, or they're comfortable, then there's no reason why they should want to leave. We're in a very interesting talent spot at the moment. We've seen a couple of kind of, uh, you know, not necessarily big names but controversial names move over the last couple of weeks. Sam Newman obviously parted ways with Nine and Nine again dropped Pauline Hanson. Eddie Maguire is somebody who draws a lot of criticism but also somebody who it seems like anytime he makes a comment there's a lot of like, oh, could now be the time that he's finally going to leave media? Could now be the time that he's going to step back? Have How does that kind of impact you? Have, have you gotten to a point with working with Eddie where you're just like, you know, it's all water off a duck's back by this point? Um, well, I mean, the, the, the misunderstood thing about Eddie is that, the I mean, we live in a world where the digital press in particular, look, and it's the same as, as newspapers, but, I mean, I say digital press because that's where people go these days. Um, the digital press is always looking for a controversial angle. They're always looking for a bad news story because that's what gets clicks, right? Um, for everything that Eddie says that the, the news media take umbrage to, he says he says or does 10 things that are positive. And when you create the sheer number of live content hours that we create on radio, people are going to make mistakes and say things that they wish they hadn't said or that come out incorrectly or are misconstrued or are, are, are taken as offensive by one group uh, or supported by another. There's and, and to me, it comes back to intent. I, I can't think of a time where anyone on the Triple M network has had the intent to maliciously harm somebody by a comment they've made on the radio. Whereas you know, there are there are other talent or other performers out there who will deliberately go out of their way to go, I'm going to say something controversial to get the column inches or to create a controversy. And that, you know, that works for them. It certainly, it certainly hasn't happened in the Triple M network um, during my tenure. And, and so I don't really get that concerned that the guys are going to say something that they shouldn't deliberately or with a malicious intent because it's just not in who they are does that answer your question it does it does just to add to that i can't control what our performers or presenters say and i wouldn't want to 
But you've also got to consider that they have their own brand and their own reputation, and they certainly have no intent to taint that or, or damage their own brand equity. Um, so I just always go in assuming that there was the best intent in, in everything they've said. And, you know, controversy, by the way, doesn't hurt ratings. Otherwise, where would Kyle be? <laughs> <laughs> Kyle is Kyle is a master at creating a controversial radio moment, and it pays off for him. Like, he's a genius at that stuff. But Jones was the same. Yeah. And Hadley. You know, these guys, it doesn't happen by accident. They know what they're going to say, and they, they, they craft it, and they think about it, and it pays off for them. And good luck to them if that's what they want to do. Um, you've been with Triple M for quite a while now. How have you kind of seen the network change? I know every time I talk to people at SCA, there's this, uh, like, there's kind of this belief that Triple M is just a bloke's network. And every time I talk to anybody, you know, they're always like, oh, no, there's a big, you know, female following as well. But I think that's, that isn't the way it's always been, is it? Uh, is the question, is it a bloke's network? Is the, is the question that <laughs> The question is, has it become a non-bloke's network or was it never a bloke's network? It was never exclusively a bloke's network. Uh, we create, and we've got a brilliant um, space to play in Triple M because our, our format is one that plays guitar-based music, um, celebrates comedy and has football on it. We're not a sports station. A sport is in our DNA, but we're not a sports station. We have sport as part of the fabric of what we do. That lends itself to a male audience. In a, in a cluttered radio environment like Sydney or Melbourne, for example, where you've got so many other commercial uh, radio stations vying for audience, it makes sense to have a clear point of difference and to have a radio brand that does what it says on the box because our advertisers know they can reach an audience. Um, so by virtue of, of playing rock music, um, football and comedy, we lean towards a male audience. I don't believe any brand is either male or female. They're non-gender specific, but our content leans male. 40 to 45% of our audience is female. Uh, so I like, you know, we, we talk around um, our target audience being people who like rock, sport and comedy. Um, but you have to have a target. You can't just go and hit, you can't go and hit a broad a church of people. You can't be everything to everyone and expect to win. So when we talk about our target, yeah, we target males. Um, but we also uh, try to be sure that we don't turn uh, anyone that isn't male, whether they be female or, or however they identify, um, we make sure we don't switch them off and they can come and enjoy the product as well. And one of the things that um, Triple M did this year in July was, um, again, you took part in No Talk Day. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how it's received by the audience? Uh, well, I mean, we didn't take part in it. We created No Talk Day. And we created No Talk Day last year as uh, a counterintuitive approach to uh, stemming the epidemic that uh, that suicide has become, in particular for men in Australia. So uh, many of us here at Triple M, as, as many people um, in, the, in the country, have been touched by suicide, either um, directly uh, or indirectly. You know, we've had some some people very close to us at the radio station take their own life. And we've seen that as a, as a brand and as a station that does talk to a lot of men more than any other radio network, um, that given that this is a male epidemic, essentially, you know, six men a day take their own lives, we almost had uh, an obligation to talk to men about this. Uh, 
we're, we're not, you know, because we play rock music, we kind of, we try not to be too political, but you know, rock music has always been political. And so we're not afraid to, to say what we think. We, we were supporting uh, White Ribbon uh, 10 years ago. Um, yeah, and quite oddly, we were supporting White Ribbon to the point where we were getting quite a lot of backlash from that, saying, you know, why are you supporting um, this White Ribbon campaign? Because, you know, men are also victims of domestic violence. And, and we pointed out that we don't support domestic violence in any capacity, regardless of who it's against, women, children, or men, uh, whether it be you know, physical violence or, or emotional violence or financial violence. Uh, and so, you know, when, it, when the, the topic of, of doing something around suicide came up, we thought it seems a really icky topic, and it's not one that in the past we've talked about on radio. It used to be taboo. We never spoke about it in the news. We never mentioned the term suicide. But over the years, you've started to see this, these stories be reported with the Lifeline or Beyond Blue caveat at the back of them. You know, if you're struggling, please call Lifeline or Beyond Blue. Um, we, we work with Beyond Blue as our community service partner, and so we thought it was time we did something. Uh, we took a counterintuitive approach. Men aren't talking, so let's um, let's not talk as well. Uh, there was, you know, a really good uh, argy-bargy around, well, m- maybe that's the opposite. Maybe we should talk to encourage men to talk, but talking on radio, everyone does. So it doesn't create as much of a noise. But by taking everything off, by saying there's no news, there's no ads, there's no announcers, there's no breakfast shows, there's no drive shows, and saying we're not talking, we use those spaces where we would normally have been playing ads for you to reach out and talk to someone about your problems or check in on them and make sure they're okay. And the response we've had from that has been overwhelming. Uh, we, we ran a, a program this year at the end of the day where we talked, ironically, uh, with uh, Gus Warland and Tom Harkin, and we took calls. And the amount of people who have just said, you've helped me today, I've been feeling down. And particularly during COVID, we were aware that you know during this lockdown period, people's mental health is bad um, and, and gone from bad to worse that off the back of the drought, things were already bad. You know, we, we actively campaigned in this area last year where Lawrence Mooney went out into, into country New South Wales and looked at the uh, desolation out there and talked to farmers and talked to them about their mental health with Gus Warland. Um, and, then, and then to have the bushfires. Like Australia's mental health hasn't been in a, in a great space. Um, so that's where the idea came from and, and that's why we did No Talk Day and we'll do it again next year and we want it to be bigger. Uh, it went across the ditch last year. They did it at Radio Harake in New Zealand, and we've been trying to get other radio stations on around the world as well. Um, unfortunately, due to due to the coronavirus, where there was a few things that weren't able to to align for that to happen. But we think it's a really important one for us. And just before we go, I'm mindful that we're pushing towards the end of our time now, but you teased earlier on in the chat that you have maybe had some, uh, made some not fantastic decisions previously in your career. In your, Did I? <laughs> in your long radio career, what would you, what would you point to as your biggest success and your biggest failure? Oh, see, I hate these questions. <laughs> Tell me what you really think. <laughs> well, success has many fathers and failure is an orphan. You've heard that before, right? <laughs> that yeah. saying. So I don't, I don't lay claim to any success. Uh, what I'm most proud of is how robust the Triple M brand is now and how resilient it is. 
you know, I've worked in this company. I've worked at this radio station brand for 22 years. It was the only radio brand I ever wanted to work on. Uh, I love what it stands for. I love the people I work with. Many of my mentors um, uh, have worked here or are still working here. People I've admired, um, I've ensured stay in the network. Um, the, the caliber of the performers that I work alongside, Mick, uh, Jane, Eddie, Luke Darcy, Lawrence Mooney, Nick Cody, Greg Martin, Mark Rusciuto, Chris Dittmar, these people are people I look up to as amazing performers and great radio people, as well as those off-air. Jay Mueller is one of the world's greatest um, producers and producers Kennedy Malloy, who was on Eddie before that. So, so the success of any of these shows is really is, – is has nothing to do with me. Um, it, it's all about a team. And, you know, Sam Kavanagh always said uh, radio is a team effort, and it really is. Um, mistakes that I've made or biggest failures. I mean, I try not to focus on, focus on them. <laughs> um, we all we all make mistakes. I've I've hired shows that uh, are no longer on the air. Not many, uh, <laughs> but I have hired shows that are no longer on the air. Um, failures. Look, I think my my biggest failure was was early on. Um, I probably wasn't a very nice person as a manager and, and as a, as a programmer, and I was probably well, I was um, arrogant and assumed I knew everything and thought I, I, I needed to be um, – in my head, I had a picture of the sort of person, the sort of program director I needed to be to run Triple M, and that's who I, I projected onto myself, and it's not who I was. So in that regard, that was my biggest failure. My biggest success would be the fact that I've been able to recognise that and actively work on that and and turn what was uh, potentially a career-ending uh, attitude problem into into 10 years running uh, probably the best and most resilient rock network in Australia, if not the world. Well, you did pretty well for a question that you didn't want to answer. <laughs> Thank I you didn't think much. about any of it until it came <laughs> out of my mouth. <laughs> That's what we like to hear. Thank you so much for joining me today, Mike. My pleasure. Thank you for the time, Hannah. And that's it for this week. But before we go, a wee reminder that the first entry deadline for the Mumbrella Publish Awards closes next month on August the 14th. And as our industry continues to grapple with the challenges of COVID-19, Mumbrella's put together a couple of initiatives to help publishers be part of that industry celebration. The entry fee has been lowered across the board, and we're also offering complimentary entries to those whose positions have been made redundant. So if your publishing brand is creating standout content, events, podcasts, or newsletters, it's an opportunity to shout about it. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash publish awards to check out the 32 categories that are in play that is it for this week though thank you everyone thank you thank you toodle pip 